Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. What is the message of Zechariah? The Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. Let's say that together again. The Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. We're going to rehearse that a few times over the next few weeks because that is Zechariah's message. That is what the Lord is saying to the people. I have not forgotten you. I still desire to bless you. And it is going to happen at the appointed time, October 19th. The appointed time. Now, I know we studied this Sunday morning. It feels like a year has gone by. In my life, just since Sunday, so much has happened. And we, we got so much teaching over the last couple of days at this conference that it, it really feels like a long time ago. So let, for my sake, would you allow me to review a bit, to bring some things into remembrance? God never misses an appointment. He never misses an appointment. And I believe we are very close. You see, the prophets tell us that God has an appointment with planet Earth. And it's an appointment that He will keep. That appointment with humanity is called the tribulation. Not something for us to be excited about. Something for us to be motivated by knowing what is coming and knowing that this lost world is going to head into tribulation. What does that do to us in the way that we talk to people? And the things that we share with people about Jesus. I mean, honestly, if I could tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, forget October 19th. If I could tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, we will not be in the new building at all. We'll never get there. Would you be excited that that means we're going to be raptured out of here any minute? Or would you be concerned that so many people you know will not? It's a tension, isn't it? I want out! But, 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 what about her? What about him? What about them? That is the divine tension that God has called us into. The passion, the thrill, the excitement of our being called out, but the reality of the appointment that He has made with planet Earth is called the Day of the Lord, and almost each and every one of the minor prophets have talked about it. Jeremiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. Isaiah talked about it. Over and over, Daniel prophesied of it. The Day of the Lord. The tribulation, this great divine global appointment that God has with this earth and He will not miss it. But you can. And I can. In fact, I'm planning not to be here. I'm going to be absent that day. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10 For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know I repeat that often. I'm trying to throw out comfort and encouragement and a reminder that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you hand your life over to Him and you're saved by faith simply in His grace, that you are not destined for wrath. We are not called to be commando Christians ready to go into the trib. Trib force, man, yeah! I'll be packing a Bible and an Uzi. It's going to be awesome. No, you're stupid. You're probably going to be the first one to die in the first big earthquake without having fired a bullet. God has not destined us for wrath. The wrath was taken by Christ on the cross. 
That's the wrath of God in full, poured out on Jesus. He didn't pour out 95% of the wrath on Christ and then say, and I reserve 5% for you Christians just to go through for two or three years until I, I think that you've proven yourselves and then I'll bring you home. That denies grace. God's grace says the wrath is not for you. We are destined for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, dead or alive, that is, when He comes, we will live together with Him. I don't know how much more clear God's Word can make that. It's that other appointment. Known only to the Father... I can't put it on my calendar, nor can you, because only the Father knows the day or the hour. The rendezvous of the rapture. Now, I don't have these verses up here behind me, but I'll throw them out to you if you are unclear about the rapture of the church. That is the idea that the Left Behind movie is about to purport and and show, and a lot of people are going to watch that movie and go, that's fantasy. Okay, Matthew 24, verses 40 through 44. Read it. It's Jesus' words. And it is about the rapture. Though some would try to dispute that. And if you read it and you're confused by it, come talk to me. I'll show you. The Greek language is absolutely clear what's going on there. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. More teaching of Jesus. Speaking of being ready, being on the alert. You don't know the day or the hour. It's going to happen. Luke 21, 36. Where Jesus says, Pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. John 14, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to prepare a place for you, Jesus says. If I go prepare a place for you, I'm going to come get you and take you to where I am, so that where I am there you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, and 18, describing in beautiful detail our being caught up, raptured, harpazo in the Greek, raptus in the Latin, you can pick any language you want. It's still the same concept. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. It's not just a sign for above the nursery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You haven't heard that one before? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be taken up. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, which I think is a picture, a hint of the rapture as John himself gets raptured up to heaven. A door is open. The trumpet sounds. A voice like the sound of a trumpet. And John is suddenly in heaven. Revelation 4 and 5. It's, it's marvelous. And it is the promise to those who believe in Jesus and who are saved not by good works, but by grace, faith in God's grace. Now, if someone, someone might ask, if, the, if only the Father knows when that appointment is, how do I keep that appointment? And the answer is so simple. Just be ready. When? Now. Tonight. Tomorrow morning when you rise. Give me Jesus. Live ready. It's the whole idea. The Word of the Lord to and through Zechariah begins with an invitation from the Lord through the prophet to the people to return to the Lord. Turn to me. Come back to me. Repent. Live for me. Turn from sin and turn to the Lord. I've told you before, the problem with the Just Say No campaign years ago, was it Nancy Reagan who came up with that one? Just say no to drugs. Well, what are you going to say yes to? 
Repentance is both. Say no to sin and say yes to Jesus. Turn away from sin, turn to the Lord. He's standing there waiting for you to turn to Him. And in verse 3, he says through the prophet, Return to me that I may return to you. What, What do we call that Sunday morning? Do you remember? When God says, return to me that I may return to you, it's the obvious choice. The obvious choice. I see choice in those words. You return to me that I may return to you. It's not God saying, I've returned. I'm back, baby. And you don't have it together. No, He says, return to me. I'm waiting. It's in your hands. It's your call. It's the obvious choice in that God does not force, He doesn't coerce, He doesn't manipulate anyone into a love relationship with Him. And by the way, neither should we when we evangelize people. When we tell people about Jesus, it is not a message of coercion. It is not trying to get their arm around behind their back and pushing up as hard as you can going, well, well, you got to go to church. Okay, I give. That's not the way God works. The message of grace, the message of the kindness of God, the love of God, that is our message of evangelism, and that's what invites people to return to the Father that He may turn to them. Luke 15.11 You know the story. Jesus tells it of a father standing at the gate, watching the road, waiting for his wayward son, his prodigal, to come home. He hasn't chased the boy down. He hasn't gone off to the far city to drag the kid out of the bar. What are you doing, son? He stands at the gate. And he watches and he waits. The obvious choice, the the call had to be his son's. Father loved the son too much to force him home. And so the obvious choice is the invitation. Now someone might say, how can I be certain that this father you're talking about, that this God, how can I be certain... He's waiting for me. I want to speak intentionally to believers primarily tonight because I'm guessing most of you are. I'd like to see that change, by the way. Not that I want you to leave. Please continue to come. (laughs) But I would like to see a shifting in this fellowship of for every believer there's a non-believer coming through the door. I think that's our responsibility. I'm going to keep talking about this. That God has not called us to just be fed, but to be fed that we might feed, that we might bring other people in. We are all here, every single one of us, youngest to oldest, we are former prodigals. Returned, wayward sons and daughters. Now I know for a four, five, six-year-old kid, that's hard to understand. All it takes is a little time. In every one of our lives... Because the longer you live, the more apparent your sin nature is. And the more you realize you are only saved by grace. But here's the thing, believers. We have got to know our Bibles. And the reason is, not so we can be smart Christians. But the lives, the very lives and eternities of the prodigals in this world depend on it. We don't have time anymore for Christians to be dullards when it comes to the Word of God. Walk in the streets and people asking questions and we don't even have an answer. Or we avoid the conversation altogether because we don't want to be found out that we don't know what we believe. We don't have that luxury anymore. Not for us, but for them. For those who are lost. 
And remember, you're not going to argue someone or strong-arm someone into the kingdom, but God's Word will overtake them. And that was the other thing we talked about Sunday morning, the obvious choice and the overtaking Word, that God's Word overtakes. Verse 6, he said, Did not my words overtake your fathers? I spoke them. He spoke them almost a thousand years before. And when everything came to pass, the Lord said, Didn't I say this would happen? And he wasn't just saying that to say, ha, 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 you know, gotcha. The Lord was saying, this is what my word does. I speak it and it comes to pass. And there is no avoiding it. It's going to overtake you. So you either accept it and walk in it, or it will overtake you because you can't run from it. And the people heard this from Zechariah. And what did they do? How did they respond? When the Lord points out what had taken place, that His Word overtook their fathers, we're told in verse 6, as uh, verse 6, they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do in us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so He has dealt with us. Repentance. His Word did overtake us. He was right. We were wrong. We ended up in Babylon because of what? We did because of how He has dealt with us. And He's dealing with people right now. And here's the thing. If you know the Word of God, if you know the overtaking Word, even if you're equipped with a few verses, a few stories, a few passages, a few truths out of the Word of God, when you see the Word overtaking someone in their life, you can inform them about it. You can sit down and lovingly and gently say, do you know why this is happening right now? Do you know why after living with five guys, now you're living with a guy who's not your husband? Jesus would say to the woman at the well, because living with guys without the covenant of marriage doesn't work. I'll show you the story. Not right now, but you can do that. That we have the overtaking word that as it begins to reveal itself in people's lives, as their lives are not working, you can say... I'm not arrogant. I'm not actually even all that smart. But God's Word speaks to what's going on in your life right now. The Bible does talk about this. And most people, if you approach them like that, most people will go, it does? The Bible talks about, well, I know the Bible condemns me living with her. No, that's not the point. The Bible explains what will happen if you live with her. There's wisdom here. You can take the wisdom or leave it, but there's great wisdom here. The overtaking word, it brings people to their knees. And we can either be before the Lord on our knees in repentance, or we will be before the Lord on our knees in judgment. Because the word either way is going to overtake. Pa asks us a pew-rattling question. I'm so glad we don't have pews, by the way. Just a thought. They're okay for some churches, that's right. But here's the question. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Have you ever asked that question? How, how am I going to get Brother Ed to, to believe in the Word? How am I going to get him to do that? Paul says, How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as Jesus, just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul quotes from Isaiah, and I'll tell you, I have prayed this prayer, prayed it today, that God would give this fellowship the best looking feet among the islands. I want you to be a people, me to be a person of 
beautiful feet. You know that when the shoes come off, the world goes, wow, those are some nice feet. I walked into a staff meeting last week. Jay goes, hey, nice treads. I'm like, what are you talking about? What are treads? I know, they're shoes. I figured this out. I know, you're a little slow. But but I'm at the point now, I just turned 50. And so I'm at the point now where I'm starting to have to ask what things mean. But I think I'm going to turn it around and make it work for me. You know, when my wife asks me to do something, I'm going to, I don't know what that means. So. How, be- what, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But the idea is that we are out there bringing good news. We're given good-looking feet not to run and hide in fear, but so we can run and not grow weary with the gospel message of Jesus. Bringing, running on the mountains, that's how Isaiah says it, and I love that. How beautiful are feet on the mountains. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, because we're proclaimers. Up and down the hills and through the valleys and on the mountains, proclaiming good news of, of hope to the lost. And I know it's hard to be a Christian today. And, and I, I, let me confess to you that, that as a teaching pastor, one of the things, and I realized this just over the last couple of days, one of the things that I have had a tendency to slide into in teaching our fellowship, I've had a tendency in to, to slide into dealing a lot with the persecution that Christians face. And, and we do. And it's getting darker for Christians in the world. It is. No, no question about that. But I've had a tendency to focus a lot on that. Listen to what Peter had to say. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. 1 Peter 3, 13. And listen closely, because I know that it is hard to be a Christian, especially in the unchurched, irreligious Northwest. Washington State, this is an unchurched area. And there are two dynamics at work here. One dynamic is Christians are further and further being marginalized in public. But along with that, Christians are are more and more huddling because of that marginalization. Does that make sense to you all? It's, It's easier that way. It's safer that way. It is easy as a pastor to talk down the government of Washington, what's going on, to talk down all the negative things, to talk about all the sin, and you know, we just got to hang in there. That's easy to do. Listen to what Peter says. I love this. Verse 13, 1 Peter 3.13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And I would say, well, Peter, you should know that. You got crucified upside down for that. And I would say, in this world, there's a lot of people, more and more, that are there to harm us if we prove zealous for what is good. But then verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Remember, because the Lord remembers and the Lord blesses at the appointed time. He says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. How many of you have feared the intimidation in our culture? Okay. Thank you, Lori. Me and Lori Beth, the only, and we're both on staff, so you're in trouble. <laughs> and maybe you don't think, you know, no, I'm not intimidated. Okay, well, how about this one? And do not be troubled. How many of you have been troubled by our culture? Yeah, so I knew that would get you. James isn't troubled by anything. He doesn't fear anything, which is why I'm glad he lives on my street. 
But he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then he goes here. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So look what he just did. I've heard that verse hundreds of times in my life. Be ready to make a defense. And it's a great verse to pull out and throw out there and to wear as a badge of honor as Christians. Be ready to make a defense. But note the context. Peter drops it right into the middle of talking about being persecuted. How do you respond to intimidation or to the trouble that we see our world in? What do you do with that? Be ready to make a defense. Man, it is prime time for the gospel right now. Because the darkness and the light are so vividly clear. To talk about the gospel in culture today, talk about the gospel in the the 1950s. Yes, I know there were sinners. Yes, I know there were people who needed to be saved and there were ugly bad things that happened. But I also know there there was a church culture in the 50s. And you can bring up the gospel and and the average person in the marketplace at least had some idea of Jesus Sunday school and church. Some idea. Not now. This is the perfect environment. An environment where you should be intimidated or troubled It's a great environment to be ready to make a defense. Ready to talk about the gospel. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. For what? For the hope that is in you. Make a defense. The word is apologia in the Hebrew, where we get apologist or apologetics. It's not making an apology. It's not saying, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, you know. Apologize for that. No, it's apologetics, you know, the defense of the faith. The thing is, though, a lot of apologetics get into arguments with people, and that's poor apologetics. Good apologetics, according to Peter, is to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for what? For the hope that is in you. He doesn't say always be ready to give a defense so you can be proven right. Given defense, give an account for the hope. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Apologia in in the Greek means a seasoned, uh, reasoned defense. Know the Bible. Know what you believe. Have confidence in the Word of God that it stands, that it it is the overtaking Word. It's going to win out in the end. So have confidence in that and share what you know. You can go back to Zechariah. But as you're turning back there, think about this. What are we defending? What are we in defense of? Again, it's not our Christian rights. It's not our Christian rights as a voting bloc in America. That is not what I'm called to defend. I'm not saying you can't defend that. I'm just saying that's not what I'm called as a Christian to be concerned about. Am I supposed to defend my moral code? Am I supposed to defend my values? No, I am called to defend my hope. My hope in Jesus. You know how many arguments that would save us? And how many conversations, good conversations, could come out of just defending your hope? Why? You're going to church again? Yeah, because I don't feel any better anywhere else in the world than I do on Sunday morning. Okay, you're a weirdo. No, I'm just hopeful. I mean, that word hope. Who doesn't want hope in this world? 
Be ready to defend the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And I know the hope is in you because every time I mention the possibility that we might not make it to next week, you guys light up. I see it and you get all excited. Oh yeah, it could be tonight. You know? And there are a few that don't. There are a few that go, well, give me a couple days. Not yet, Jesus. You know, I'm not ready. Defend the defense of the hope that we have within us. Okay, so with all that, with the obvious choice, the, over, the overcoming word, the, the uh, overtaking word, now the prophet is just getting started. And so am I. Verse 7. Verse 7, the prophet is going to begin to head into eight visions. Watch this. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat. It's not Shabbat. It's not like the Sabbath. This is actually a Babylonian word. It's a Babylonian month. The entire Jewish calendar is based on the Babylonian calendar. (laughs) Remarkable. So on the 24th of the day of the 11th month, which is in the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, Okay, so the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. Right. So we just heard it again. Didn't know it, but you just did. Every time you see His whole name written out there, we're getting this message, this undercurrent message from the Lord through Zechariah. Eight startling visions will be shared through chapter 6. They're all dated to this night. But they're not dreams. They're visions. Zechariah isn't asleep. Now, dreams are a legitimate way that the Lord speaks. In the last days, my old men will, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will have visions, right? So it's one of the ways we know Zechariah was a young man. No, kidding. He had visions, though. And he's awake and aware, and he's alert, but all on the same night, which I think is remarkable, because these visions are big. And the only date we're given is this 24th day of Shabbat. That would be February 15th. Um, 519 B.C. We know the exact day that he got this, or the exact night. These eight visions are a single collection of visions. They really should all be taken together, although we won't get through them all tonight. We'll be lucky if we get through one. But the first vision is the key to all the rest. And that's what I want to focus on tonight, the first vision of these eight. And if you want to entitle it something, you could call it a globe-trotting patrol. Verse 8. And I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Isn't that nice? Globe-trotting patrol. There is a lot in these few verses. So we've got to unpack it carefully tonight. Go back and look at verse 8. Let's take these things one at a time. I saw at night. We already discussed that. He's awake. It's through the night. And behold... 
a man was riding on a red horse, standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Myrtle trees. Myrtle trees are those sweet-smelling trees. This may be in the Kedron Valley, because it says in the valley or in the ravine. And we know he's in the region of Jerusalem, so it could be the Kedron. It may be one of a number of valleys there in Jerusalem. But the valley is filled with these myrtle trees. Now, when you are reading prophecy and you're studying scripture, and very specifically named trees or colored horses or specific events are listed, it's always for a reason. So you always want to slow down. Don't just blast by and go, oh, valley of myrtles, go on. Wait for it. See what it means. The myrtle trees. Myrtle trees are plentiful in Jerusalem and throughout Israel today. In fact, in the massive replanting of trees in Israel, some of you have been aware about aware of that. The, the Jewish National Fund started this uh, almost a century ago of, of replanting in the land because it was so desolated after 18, 1900 years of devastation and, and abuse. So people started replanting trees. One of the main trees replanted in the land, myrtle trees. That's interesting to me. That this vision is having to do with a ravine that is filled with myrtles. And these trees are replanted all over. They are like a badge of honor to the Israelis, to the Jewish people. The rabbis, for whatever reason, say the myrtle is a picture of righteousness. It's only mentioned five times in Scripture, This the Hebrew word for myrtle. Five times it's used. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 15 So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths. Because myrtle trees is one of the key branches used in building booths for Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. In building sukkahs are what they're called, those little lean-to tabernacles that people would build. And they still do it every uh, fall. They do this. The Feast of Tabernacles is a great, joyous celebration. Myrtle tree branches were used, even are used today, as part of the building of those. So that's one reference. Another reference, Isaiah 41, verse 19. The Lord says, I will put the cedar in the wilderness. The acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress. The myrtle is among those trees that the Lord says, I'm putting back in the land. Interesting. Because the land is filled with myrtle trees today. Right now. Isaiah 55 verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. You could say the myrtle symbolizes the Lord's remembrance of His people. The Lord remembers. It is a picture of His remembrance. A picture of the fact that He he keeps His word. And He said, I'm going to replant this land and it's happening even now in our day. The Hebrew word for myrtle is haras. Hadas. It's also a name of a very famous young woman among the Jewish people. Hadassah. Esther. Which is why perhaps the rabbis consider the myrtle as a, a tree of righteousness because Esther was a righteous woman. Esther saved her people by sticking her neck out in Persia, out of the land. Hadassah is Esther's name. Who better 
than Hadassah as a symbol of God's protection and care and remembrance of His people. That He protected His people even out of the land there in Persia and the myrtle tree, the Hadass. The myrtles, again, they're, they're in a ravine. I, I think that's also interesting because it doesn't say the Kadron Valley. And in fact, if you read this in the King James, it's probably a little bit better translation there. It says, He was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the low place. When you are in the low place, the Lord loves to plant myrtle trees. The Lord loves to bring sweet-smelling things when you're in the low place. The Lord remembers you in the low place. The Lord invites you to be righteous even in the low place. And in these places that are dark or difficult, these valleys, it reminds me, the myrtles in the valley, it reminds me that God remembers me when I'm low, when I'm down, when I'm in the valley. The ravines of my life. Psalm 23.4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the myrtle in the valley. Now, there are three horse colors here. There are many horses, apparently. A plurality of horses. But three colors of the horses that are in this international reconnoiter. Right? The first horse is the red horse. The red horse. Red, sorrel, and white. The red horse is a war horse. And we learn these things by comparing to other scriptures, just as we did with the myrtle tree. The war horse, a red horse. Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. A red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. War. And you know that, of the, of the riders of Revelation 6, that the red rider, the, the red rider with a little shotgun, no. The rider on the red horse, <laughs> the rider on the red horse is a symbol, a picture of war. And so here is this guy, this man on a red horse, not the same rider, and I am absolutely certain of that, but the red horse does symbolize war and bloodshed. And in fact, this comment of this rider on a red horse among these horses being sent out on global surveillance should terrify the nations today. As much as back then, it should really rattle the nations. More on that later. The second horse, the white horses, uh, actually that's the third horse, right? Red, sorrel, white. The white horses easily speak of victory. It's just white horse. You're riding in on a white horse. I mean, that has for long in our history, and even in Middle Eastern history, the idea of a white horse was symbolic of victory. So you have the red horse of war, the white horse of victory, and then you have the sorrel horse. And translators have struggled with this one. And I found most wouldn't touch it. Most are like, we're just guessing, so we can't really say what this is. What we know is that the, the word sorrel there, and it's used very rarely in Scripture, it, it, the idea is um, modeled or mixed. So you've got clearly white horses, clearly reddish horses, and then you've got this horse that is of mixed color, kind of in between the white horse and the red horse. What is that exactly? I don't know. Um, 
I'll say perhaps, and thinking about this, maybe what we're seeing is, is a balance in between, in between the judgment of war and the, the mercy of victory, that this is the horse that's in the middle. The horse that somewhat portrays war and victory, judgment and mercy. He's, he, these horses are kind of a mixture. And so this is the army of these horses. But what I'm more interested in than any of the horses or their colors, I mean, they're all horses of a different color, the only thing that I'm really interested in is that guy on the red horse. Who is he? Who is this man astride the red horse? Who to man? It's always a good question to ask when you're not sure in Scripture. Who to man? Verse 9. Then I said... My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing, and that word standing, he's, he's on the horse. Okay, The man standing is the, is the one who is on the horse. The idea is a stride. The idea is like standing in the saddle. Like You can imagine a commander riding up among the cavalry and then standing up in the saddle and waiting for his men to report to him. Okay, That's the picture here. The man who was standing among the myrtle trees... He answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent, again, to patrol the earth. And so they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. you catch that? The one on the horse, the one standing on the horse in the midst of the myrtle trees is the angel of the Lord. Well, aren't they all angels, Rick? Hang with me. They say to him, we, we patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. I believe the man and the angel, again, are one and the same. Now, there are other commentators who try and break this up. Some have said, well, no, there was a man standing there, and then there was the angel of the Lord. But if you read the passage and look at it, not only in the context of the passage, but also in the context of the eight visions, it becomes very clear who the angel of the Lord is. And he is the primary player. And he is the one and the same He is the one on the red horse. The angel of the Lord. You Bible students know where I'm going with this. And if you're not sure where I'm going, listen, the name is Malach Yahweh. Malach Yahweh. Malach is simply messenger. We say angel. Oh, well, it's got to be an angel, right? An angel is a messenger, but this angel of the Lord is the Malach Yahweh. And we've seen him throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. He has shown up time and time again. I was raised in a church, don't know about you, but I was raised in a church that spent most of our time in the New Testament, and of that, most of our time in the writings of Paul. I had an assumption that a lot of people have, and it is a wrong assumption, that Jesus doesn't come around until Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, or John, depending on which one you think is first. I think it's Mark, but... Jesus shows up then. The beginning of the Gospels, that's when He shows up. And other than that, He was up in heaven with the Lord. Can you imagine just waiting? (laughs) 4,000 years of history. But the angel of the Lord showing up throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the name that is given to the one who visited Abraham. This is the name of the one who wrestled with Jacob. This is the name of the one who dealt with Gideon. This is the one who walked the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who appears throughout, again, the Hebrew Scriptures, bearing authority, receiving worship, and speaking as the very Word of God. Note that. Go back to verse 1. Verse 1, all the way back up to the top. Let's just start over. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the Word of the Lord came to Zechariah. How does a word come to somebody? 
What is a telegram? You know, is it Instagram? What was the word of the Lord came to Zechariah? Okay, who's the word of the Lord? Bible's clear about that one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Rick, you're getting crazy on me. You're saying Jesus was here like before the New Testament? Uh-huh. <laughs> the Word of the Lord, verse 1, came to Zechariah. He repeats it. Verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. And then Zechariah just describes the word of the Lord, the man, standing on the red horse in the midst of the myrtles. The angel of the Lord, the Malak Yahweh, is there, the word of the Lord. It's him. Zechariah here, and you will see following, receives instruction from, I believe, none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Which makes the book of Zechariah that much more exciting for me. Because there's Jesus here. Not just by His Spirit breathing inspiration, but showing up and going, Zechariah, we got some things to do. I have some things I want you to talk about. And remember it was Peter who said the Spirit of Christ within the prophets told them of the sufferings and the glories of Christ to follow. So Christ is the instructor through the whole thing anyway. We shouldn't be surprised if He chooses to show up. And by the way, remarkably, the rabbis agree with me on this. The non-Christian Jewish rabbis who wrote in the Babylonian Talmud, this man is no other than the Holy One, blessed be He, for it is said, the Lord is a man of war. The rabbis recognize this. Oh, they wouldn't call Him Yeshua, Jesus, not yet. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. They wouldn't recognize Jesus as this Messiah. But this, according to the rabbis, is the Lord. Showing up. And the Bible tells us when the Lord shows up in the flesh, it's Jesus. That's so cool. Exodus 15, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, He will raise a war cry. And He will prevail against His enemies. And my friends, nowhere do we see that more powerfully exemplified than in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns. Then riding on a white horse of victory. But this is a red horse. Hold that thought. This is the same rider whom Zechariah will later see on a donkey's colt. The same one John saw, again, gloriously on that white steed in Revelation 19. The angel of the Lord. And throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and let me just tell you, if you're, if you're waffling or wonky on this at all, the more conservative Bible scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is Jesus throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Why do the conservative scholars believe that? Because they look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, they take the Bible as a whole, and they say, it all points to Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you believe that in them you have life, it is these that testify of me. It's all about Him. Psalm 40, verse 10. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Quote it again in Hebrews 
In Hebrews. <laughs> I think it's Hebrews 11 verse, I don't know. I'm just spacing it right now. But in the book of Hebrews, that, that verse is quoted and applied again directly to Jesus. In the scroll of the book it's written, it's all about Jesus. Amen. Give me Jesus. In the morning, when I'm alone, and even when I die, give me Jesus. Still uncertain? Well, again, he's the focal point of all the prophecies of Zechariah. Jesus is the point of the prophecies. But why would he be riding a red horse of war, a horse of bloodshed, instead of the white steed of victory that he rides later? Because, well, let me ask you this question. Whose blood was spilled in Jesus' first coming? His blood. His blood. I think, and this is just me, but I think he's riding a red horse, which not only speaks of war, but it speaks of bloodshed, because he is representing what he is about to do. That he himself... That he himself is going to come and shed his blood. So it's not time for the white horse of victory. It is time for the suffering servant who is coming to die on the cross. And then, after the resurrection, after the the age of the church, after the time of God's grace, when Jesus comes back, He comes back in victory because He shed His blood the first time. So Zechariah sees Him here. He's watching over the earth. He's heading up the global patrol. Because again, His blood is about to be shed for the whole world. That's why they're going around the whole world. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, there's your message of hope. You ought to at least have that one memorized. That will go a long way.